This is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. Well, we're going to hear some more about the UND Writers' Conference later in our program. And, of course, we'll have our weekly debrief with News Director Dave Thompson about the week's headlines. And uh, Distinguished Professor of History at NDSU Tom Ezern will join us with a Plains Folk column and, of course, Dakota Date Book as well. But we begin today with a story about Oxfam America. It's a nonprofit that encourages uh, people to to get out of poverty and encourages justice issues. And uh, joining us today to talk about this is Chris Jocknick, Director of the Private Sector Department for Oxfam America. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, I understand by just Googling a bit that the name Oxfam comes from the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, which was founded in Britain during World War II. And then Oxfam International was formed in 1995. Is that when Oxfam America came online too? No, uh, we came online in the in the early seventies, actually. Ah, so you preceded the international. So, what what is Oxfam to you? Well, Oxfam, I think, is um, one of the best development organizations in the world. We have a presence in ninety countries. Uh, we have an approach to poverty and famine that distinguishes us from many of our peer groups. In that, we believe to really get at those sort of complex, difficult issues, we have to address not only the provision of food in humanitarian crises, but we have to address the structural issues behind poverty and famine and and, uh, injustice. And so what Oxfam does is we have uh, a three-pronged approach where on the one hand we address humanitarian crises, and in those situations we will sometimes be operational. Um, We do long-term development where we're really trying to build the capacity of people in developing countries to solve problems themselves. And then we do international and national level advocacy where we're trying to put pressure on powerful actors like governments and private sector actors uh, to change their policies and and in that way try to change some of the structures that also keep people in poverty. Who belongs to Oxfam? Well, Oxfam has a a staff around the world. Now, this is Oxfam America plus 16 other Oxfam. So we're we're a large confederation. All the Oxfam's... Together, have about 6,000 staff. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, we have an international secretariat, that's Oxfam International, sitting in Oxford. Um, but as a nonprofit, we don't have shareholders. Uh, we're, we're run by a board of directors, uh, and we have a, a membership of something like two or 300,000 uh, people that provide small amounts of money along with larger donations from foundations. Well, let's talk about one of your most recent initiatives, the the. the Behind the Brands Transparency Initiative, I've got a news release in front of me that indicates that at the end of February, you released the results of an 18-month investigation into the policies of the 10 biggest food and beverage companies who produce some of the most popular brands on grocery store shelves, and you were looking at transparency. Why? Well, the, the food and agricultural system has an enormous impact on people living in developing in the developing world. And consumers are, are fairly uh, informed and understand some of the nutritional issues, and a lot of that stuff is very transparent now, which is excellent. Um, but there's very little understanding and almost no transparency about the other side of this food system. And so how are those um, four or 500 million small farmers who provide a lot, of that, a lot of the commodities that go into our food, how are they faring in this system? And how is the water and land... Uh, and greenhouse gas emissions, what is the impact of the system on, on those uh, aspects? Uh, and so we, what we were trying to do with this uh, Behind the Brands initiative is to shed a little light on those areas uh, where, where we believe that consumers are also concerned if they can get the kind of information they need. And then we've created a very interactive platform on the web where anybody that wants to uh, can go in, uh, look up one of their favorite brands, see which company owns it, and then uh, see how that company is doing along seven different themes uh, that have to do with the supply chain. So and farmers, women, um, workers, and so forth. And these are gigantic corporations, Nestle, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, General Mills. Uh, how did you evaluate them? Well, we, we first chose the ten largest, uh, as you were saying. Um, six of those happen to be headquartered in the United States, companies that consumers are very familiar with, uh, Kellogg's, General Mills, Pepsi, and Coke, as you mentioned. Um, and then what we did is we broke it down into seven themes. We, we wanted to look at how do these companies in their supply chains, how do they impact uh, smallholder farmers, workers, women, water, land, 
greenhouse gas emissions. So those were six themes. And then we have a seventh theme of transparency. How transparent are they? How much are they disclosing about those supply chain impacts? Well, General Mills, which is based in the Twin Cities, did not score well. It was the most secretive of the ten. Uh, explain that. Well, um, some companies have different levels of transparency. Um, some companies have decided to embrace um, the demands or the, or the push from consumers and shareholders and investors and the public for more transparency, and they've made it, they've sort of built it into their culture to be more transparent. Other companies are still less comfortable with that, and I would say that General Mills still is not reporting very much on critical, critical aspects of its, of its impact, and we're hoping that um, through this initiative uh, some pressure may be applied to General Mills and some of the other laggards uh, so that they will start disclosing those issues that, again, we think are just critical uh, to all consumers and to the public, and, and as much as nutrition or other aspects, we really want General Mills to start talking about how many farmers it has in its supply chain, uh, how, what sort of policies does it have on the books for water and land use and so forth. Well, how do you ensure that your analyses will meet criteria for objectivity? Well, uh, that's a great question. What we did is we, have, we developed, within those seven themes that I mentioned, we developed a series of questions um, which get at the, the heart of those seven themes. And so we have 276 questions in total. Each one is answerable by a yes or a no. Either a company has a policy on the books or it doesn't. Either a company does disclose certain information or it doesn't. And then we've put all of that, those questions up on the web so anybody who wants to can very easily go in, uh, look at the 276 questions for any of these companies or just break down by theme and see what the answer was. And then we have a link to the information uh, or the document or the policy that we used um, to, uh, to make a decision. And we did that in a very collaborative fashion. So we weren't out to blindside the companies or to gratuitously shame them in any way. What we did is we went from the very beginning, we went to the companies, we talked to them about this framework, we got their input on these different questions and criteria. We talked to a number of outside experts as well. And then we went back to the companies after doing all our research and we asked them, have we missed something? Is there more information that you can provide us that would address some of these um, issues and these questions. And all 10 companies uh, were very good faith, I would say, in, in their engagement with Oxfam. So we had good conversations with all of them. They provided additional information. And so we think that what we now have up on that website after over a year's worth of work is um, about as objective and um, unbiased as possible. But the beauty of this, again, is that anybody that wants to can go in and have a look at the sort of questions that we're asking and how we scored them and what information is available to justify those, uh, the, the, the judgments that we made. Can you give us an example of how Oxfam has influenced a giant corporation based in the U.S. to uh, uh, affect uh, the wage and work conditions of workers in some undeveloped country? We started off by trying to bring food and um, dig wells and build schools for people and we, over the years, have made this transition towards that stuff is important, but only in certain situations. We want to now start developing their capacity, and then as part of that, we want to start addressing these structural issues like industries. So over the years, we have started putting pressure on certain industries. We started with the big oil and mining companies because they have such huge impact on uh, communities. Uh, there are a number of companies that we've engaged with quite constructively, but sometimes We've been adversarial. We've gone to the shareholder uh, meetings. We've, we've um, targeted them for various uh, media initiatives or what we call e-actions where people will send uh, emails in. Um, and uh, certainly in the oil and mining sector, we've seen some companies move uh, their policies. Newmont Mining, for example, has been very engaged, uh, has been both at the receiving end but also has worked uh, constructively with Oxfam to change some of its policies. I, I shouldn't say just Oxfam, Oxfam and others. Um, with the pharmaceutical industry, we've seen a number of changes in response to some of the issues that we've raised with them. Um, a very concrete case is we put a lot of pressure on companies to, at the beginning of the, sort of the fair trade movement, to start carrying more fair trade coffee. Uh, we've worked with a number of farmers in countries like um, uh, Mexico and Ethiopia, and we got involved in one particular issue with Starbucks some years ago where the Ethiopian government was um, concerned that Starbucks had started to trademark uh, names of coffees that were coming from Ethiopia, and the Ethiopian government wanted to sit down and talk to Starbucks about those intellectual property rights because they have a big impact on their farmers. 
and they couldn't get Starbucks to the table for that. We spent six months campaigning, and really we spent a lot of time talking to Starbucks first, but uh, meeting with resistance, we, we campaigned, uh, and after about six months of pressure from a lot of different sides, shareholders, investors, NGOs like Oxfam, um, farmer communities themselves through their different representatives, Starbucks did finally sit down uh, with the Ethiopian government and worked out a deal. And we believe that that deal now has contributed directly to higher incomes for Ethiopian farmers growing those coffees. Uh, so there you have a very concrete case of how putting pressure on some companies can make a difference. And, and again, we've done that with and not just Oxfam, a number of groups have done that across a number of industries. The apparel industry has moved quite a bit, uh, and, and uh, retailers have moved. So we, we've seen movement in, on various fronts, but it often uh, takes this kind of very public pressure to get companies to out, outside of their comfort zones uh, to adopt uh, new policies and to make themselves a little more accountable to the public or to different stakeholders. On the Oxfam America website in your area, there's a quote that uh, caught my eye. We press decision makers to change policies and practices that reinforce poverty and injustice. How is Oxfam's work viewed in our fractious political environment? Well, um, when we take on certain government policies and we put pressure on policymakers, some of those policymakers may chafe. That's inevitable. Some companies will chafe. Um, but we also work very constructively uh, with the U.S. government, with other governments. Uh, we provide a lot of critical information uh, to government actors, uh, to, to companies and others uh, that are really out there to, to make the right decisions. Um, so that I, w- I would characterize our relationship as constructive and independent. Uh, and one thing that's important to note is we take no U.S. government money for exactly that reason, um, and that really distinguishes also uh, from a number of other development groups. We want to ensure that we have the independence to cri- criticize the U.S. government when we believe that uh, the government is not doing the right thing, as well as to celebrate it when we think it's doing the right thing. Chris, uh, a lot of these corporations are, are just enormous. Uh, do you deal with them as like quasi-governmental entities? I mean... Uh, do you expect them to influence the politics in other countries where they have, where they do business? Yeah, that's a great question. We know that these companies can have an enormous influence that goes well beyond their particular market share uh, or the amount of supplies that they may be buying from any particular supplier. Their brand, their marketing, their relationships with governments, um, they have all kinds of ways that they can influence policies, and they do influence policies through their trade groups. Um, often individually, often um, through their personal relationships with key government actors. So, yes, we, we do view them, in, in many cases, as quasi-governmental in that sense, and we believe that they have um, a, a heightened obligations to address some of these long-term issues um, because, at the end of the day, uh, these companies need these markets to be healthy. I mean, nobody benefits from conflict and poverty, and many of the companies that we work with uh, recognize that, and and we often will lobby together on certain issues because those companies have have understood that the the goals that Oxfam and others have uh, to address poverty, to create stronger, more vibrant markets, are is exactly in line with their long term business interests. We want them out there talking to governments, but we want them to do it in a way that's transparent and that is aligned with their sustainability commitments. I'm just thinking about there are a few third-world countries that have uh, maybe a commodity that is uh, uh, attractive to some of these corporations, like cocoa or sugar. Uh, but uh, isn't it possible, then, that the corporation literally dictates to the government what they'll do? Well, it's tough. I mean, uh, I, I would say the public perception is often that companies can simply dictate. I don't think that's the case, in fact, because there are. it's rare that you get a, a single company with so much influence that they can virtually dictate. Now, companies together in trade organizations um, and with the U.S. government can often, working hand-in-glove with the U.S. government, can often have um, enormous influence over countries. Um, I'd say that we see that more on the side of oil and mining, uh, where oil companies really can have an enormous influence on uh, the policies of um, developing country governments. A little less so with commodities, but certainly where where you see those uh, the dependence that certain countries have on single commodities, that does uh, raise that. They are a little more exposed than you would anticipate that there's more influence that those companies can have. Who is Oxfam answerable to? 
Well, ultimately, we're, we're, we're answerable to our board of directors, and we have an independent board of directors, and to our funders, uh, and very much to the public, because we are sustained by public donations. Uh, and so everything uh, about our work is up on the website. People can keep very good track of how we're spending uh, our money. Um, and so we are ultimately answerable, I would say, to the public and to the the people that make our work possible. Well, as we've discussed, Oxfam International is comprised of 17 organizations, and Oxfam America is one. Is each organization sovereign in its actions, or do all of the organizations sign on to every initiative under the Oxfam banner? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we are sovereign, um, but there is a sphere within which we all collaborate and we're all aligned, so that there are certain principles by which we all abide, and uh, in that way we all use the Oxfam brand, so that there is a, a certain set of principles, but um, we are also largely autonomous and sovereign about the way we, we use our resources, the way we go about our business, and then when we have large campaigns or when we do humanitarian actions, we will then um, adopt a, a, a set of principles for those particular actions where all of the affiliates will join in and follow those principles or a certain number of affiliates will join in. So, for example, with this Behind the Brands campaign that we've been discussing today, and I hope people will go to BehindTheBrands.org to have a look at our website, um, that, that one has been taken up by a number of affiliates in over 14 countries, and all of our messaging, all of the materials, all of the websites follow a certain set of guidelines to make sure that we're not sending mixed messages or we're not campaigning against one company and collaborating it with, uh, with it on the other side. We have to make sure that we're very synchronized in that respect. How would you describe the success of Oxfam's efforts to eradicate uh, poverty and combat injustice? Well, unfortunately, these are issues that are deeply rooted, and it's, it's tough for any one organization, uh, even uh, governments, to get at those issues. But we think we're making progress, and we're, we're, we are seeing reductions in, in things like um, infant mortality, um, we're seeing a lot more awareness around issues like water and land and, and uh, climate change, which all impact the poor disproportionately. Um, we're seeing more awareness around the importance of good governance, so social responsibility and accountability of corporations. So we are seeing certain, in certain ways, we're seeing movement, uh, but all of those good uh, trends have not translated into a you know, to uh, addressing or lowering significantly the incidence of poverty yet. Uh, but I think we are, we're on track. Uh, well, we're slowly moving in the, in the right direction. I guess I can't say that we're on track uh, because there's still uh, far too much poverty and injustice in this world. But I, I think we are trending in a, in a good direction. Chris Jocknick is director of the private sector department for Oxfam America. We've been talking about Oxfam and specifically the initiative Behind the Brands. And uh, you can find out all that information, as Chris said, at BehindTheBrands.org. You can Google Oxfam. There's an awful lot of stuff on the web about this uh, a nonprofit. And we appreciate you joining us today, Chris. Thank you so much. Next, the UND Writers Conference. It's a night of jazz on Prairie Public. Following the rebroadcast of Hear It Now, we kick it off with Friday Night Swing with Lloyd Anderson. Then at 9 Central, it's Riverwalk Jazz. And at 10, Bob Studebaker hosts as we present both classic jazz from the legends of American music and new jazz from emerging artists. Then at 11, it's the Jazz Junket with Ryan Schweitzer, followed at midnight by Jim Wilkie's Jazz After Hours. That's all right here, statewide, on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, Sangria is the CD's name. It's the music of Mariah Parker, an Indo-Latin jazz musical experience. Alex Cavanaugh, who is in postgraduate studies in the University of North Dakota English Department, will introduce us today to the work of Gary Steingart, who will be appearing at the UND Writers' Conference later this month. 
Gary Steingart's third and latest novel, Super Sad True Love Story, is a masterful work of fiction that follows protagonist Lenny Abramov as he comes to terms with middle age in an all-too-near future, in which inquiry, reading, and writing are conventions of the past. At times hilarious and harrowing, and in both capacities powerful, Steingart's prose takes American fiction to a new level. Here is a passage from a super sad true love story. Dear Diary, My operat isn't connecting. I can't connect. It's been almost a month since my last diary entry. I'm so sorry, but I can't connect in any meaningful way to anyone, even to you, Diary. Four young people committed suicide in our building complexes, and two of them wrote suicide notes about how they couldn't see a future without their operati. One wrote, quite eloquently, about how he reached out to life, but found there only walls and thoughts and faces, which weren't enough. He needed to be ranked, to know his place in this world. And that may sound ridiculous, but I can understand him. We are all bored out of our minds. My hands are itching for connection. I want to connect to my parents and to Vishnu and Grace. I want to mourn Noah with them. But all I have is Eunice in my wall of books. So I try to celebrate what I have, one of my prime directives. Work has been good. Kind of a blur, but even a blur is better than the slow churn of reality. Mostly I work alone at my desk with a half-turned bowl of miso by my side. I haven't really spent time with Joshi since the slap. He's off somewhere, negotiating with the IMF or the Norwegians or the Chinese or whoever still cares. Howard Shu, dork that he is, has become the standard bearer for the few of us still left at post-human. He walks around with an old-fashioned clipboard and actually tells us what to do. Before the rupture, we would never have stood for anything so hierarchical, but now we're just glad to have instructions, even barked ones. My job for the time being is to send out Wapachung emergency frequency messages to our clients, making sure they're safe, but also subtly checking up on their businesses, their marriages, their children, their finances, making sure we're safe and that our monthly dues keep coming. It's not going to be easy. No one's working. The children aren't getting paid, is what I hear. No school. Children set loose and free into the difficult new city. I flound a Vladic house kid, maybe 10 or 12, sitting by the Arab bodega, licking out the inside of an empty bag of something called kluk, which the packaging warned was inspired by real chicken flavor. When I sat down next to him, he could barely lift his eyes up to mine. Out of instinct, I took out my apparat and pointed it at the kid, as if that would make things right. Then I took out a brown 20 yuan note and set it at his feet. Immediately, his hand darted for it. The bill was scrunched into his fist. The fist was hidden behind his back. His face slowly turned to face mine. The brown-eyed look he gave me was not one of gratitude. The look said, Leave me alone with my newfound fortune or I will lash out at you with the last strength I have. I left him there with his fist behind his back, his eyes on my departing feet. I don't know what's going on. The city is either completely finished or already shooting for redemption. New signs are going up. Tourism NYC, are you rupture ready? And New York City Edge, do you have what it takes to survive? Gary Steingart will give a reading at the UND Writers' Conference on Friday, March 22nd at 4 o'clock p.m. in the Memorial Union Ballroom. That was Alex Cavanaugh, UND graduate student, talking about the one of the authors of the upcoming UND Writers' Conference. We're going to talk with Prairie Public News Director Dave Thompson about the Big stories in the news this week, but first let's find out what's happening today, right now. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. The Red River Diversion Project was debated yet again, this time in a hearing before the Senate Appropriations Committee. The House removed funding for buyouts and ring dikes tied to the diversion project. House Majority Leader Al Carlson of Fargo says until the federal government puts money toward the diversion, the state shouldn't either. But diversion supporters say they need the money to show the feds the state and Fargo are committed to the project. Aaron Snyder of the Corps of Engineers is the project director. He told the committee the project has already been approved and is now just awaiting funding. That plan has been reviewed uh, in a number of ways within the Corps of Engineers and outside by independent experts, and it's made it through all of those reviews as the best possible plan. 
Opponents say the funding should be withheld and an alternative plan developed. Craig Hartsgard, uh, Craig Hartsgard farms near Kindred. This is Fargo's project. The diversion should not become North Dakota's project. No one wants Fargo to flood. There are alternatives already on the table that be, can be completed in less time for less money and alternatives that don't make the rest of the state pay a price that we shouldn't have to. The budget does contain $100 million for permanent diking in Fargo to raise the levees to 42 and a half feet. President Obama has signed the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act into law. The bill provides more protection for Native American women and children and grants for the LGBT community. It also creates funding to reduce the backlog of DNA tests for rape cases across the country. Erin Prochno is executive director for the YWCA in Fargo. She says the law provides housing and support services in addition to other counseling and education support from other agencies in the area. She says right now 14 children and er, 14 women and 18 children are currently residing in YWCA's transitional housing units and those are funded directly by the Violence Against Women Act. Prochno says the YWCA is thankful the bill was reauthorized and that it was frustrating waiting for it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we wrote to our senators and our congressmen and said, you know, there's no time to waste. The inability of the 112th Congress to produce a bill for the president to sign last year has, you know, it placed organizations like us in a position we never imagined in having perhaps a gap in service delivery. And so uh, we're certainly pleased to, you know, to, to hear that Congress acted, the president signed the bill, and our service delivery uh, to our understanding, anyhow, should not be interrupted. Prochno says that while more protections are included in the bill, it is smaller in terms of funding. But she says the YWCA will continue to be able to compete for grants because the, gr- the bill was reauthorized. And the president of the Board of Higher Education says a new performance audit report reinforces the university system's request for more audit and compliance staff. Dwayne Espigard says the audit was done for a legislative committee. The question that was asked in the audit report is, does the system have enough resources to do what they're required to do? And the report that came out simply said, uh, no, they don't have enough resources to do what they're going to do or responsible for. The state Senate removed any new central office positions from the budget, and now the House will take a look. Chancellor Ham Shivani had asked for 30 new positions, and Governor Dalrymple included seven in the budget proposal. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and every Friday, Prairie Public News Director Dave Thompson joins me via his microphone in the Bismarck studio to chew over the big stories of the week, and actually, the biggest one almost for a lot of the state, at least on the eastern side, just happened this morning with that discussion of the Fargo Diversion Project. Dave, the House Majority Leader and the person who presented the amendments, the the controversial amendments, wasn't there. No, he was not there. I'm not necessarily surprised that he wasn't there because he just leaves that to the committee. The committee knows where he stands. And he just said, okay, let's let the Water Commission present the bill as it is and let's let the proponents and the opponents of the amendments have at it. And they had at it. They had at it, a hearing that went well over two hours. And I was there for the entire thing. It was uh, it was pretty much from what people have been telling me. It was a lot of replay of some of the arguments that were had at some of these public meetings in and around the Valley and around the Fargo-Moorhead area when they started talking about the diversion. There is a, diff- a definite uh, split. We have Fargo and uh, I guess West Fargo and some some cities south of Fargo, the upstream cities, are saying this is a good thing, and some other people from upstream are saying, hey, wait a second, it's not a good thing because it's going to hurt our property and our our farming rights and maybe our houses because there's going to be a housing buyout. And some of the arguments that were made, uh, we've heard before, uh, let's delay it and let's study something else. Well, Fargo is saying this is the approved project. We need to show the Congress that the state is committed to the project, and you do that by putting money where your mouth is, and that will help us when we go to get funding authorized for it. See, you heard uh, the comment from Aaron Snyder saying that that is the project. This is the project that we have all agreed on. It has passed all the musters. The only thing left for the project now is to get funded, is to be authorized for funding from Congress. That's what they're going to be doing. They're going to be going to Washington, D.C. later this year to ask for funding. 
if the state holds back and says, wait a second, we want the federal government to ante up first, the the proponents are saying that's not going to work because that shows that the state is weak on the project and they're not going to be as likely to fund it. Hmm. Well, I, I, my ears perked up when I heard the fellow from Kindred call it Fargo's project. Uh, that sort of puts uh, us against them, I guess, in terms of uh, the diversion proponents and those other people across the state who may or may not and care this, for it. And what was interesting that was brought up by a number of the speakers said, look, we've got money in the budget to take Fargo, the, the, the levee system in Fargo, to 42 and a half feet. Moorhead is protected to 42 and a half feet. Mm-hmm. The, the state of Minnesota apparently is not going to throw any money into this diversion project at all. And they're saying, okay, then it is Fargo's project. However, Fargo's saying, look, we're an economic engine, which Fargo is an economic engine. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of jobs that would be affected if there's a major flood. So it's it's an interesting uh, immovable object versus irresistible force, I think. And one of happening. the giant personalities uh, tied to this whole debate is Fargo Mayor Dennis Walliker, and he apparently has disputed the claim that Fargo can get to 42 and a half feet of flood protection. That's what I understand. Yes. Without the diversion. That's right. And in terms of there are all sorts of things that were brought up at the hearing, and what I thought was interesting is that yeah, the diking can go to 42 and a half feet, but that doesn't necessarily mean that flood insurance won't go up or that the Corps of Engineers is going to say, okay, that's good enough to help Fargo, you know, weather a flood. If you're talking about what, what they call the 2009 flood, the flood of record, as a 50-year event, and they're trying to base it on a 100-year event. Yeah, well. And, of course, that's, that's, that's an average. It's not like it's going to happen once in 100 years, but you take an average of what's happened over the 100 years, the highest level. It could happen three times in four years, for all we know. Well, Al Carlson is a very powerful fellow, and uh, uh, the voices today seem to uh, provide some support for his amendments. Some support and some opposition. Uh, are you reading any tea leaves? Do you get any sense of where this is going? I think, uh, at this point that the Senate is going to put it into a subcommittee. There seems to be a real split on the Senate Appropriations Committee right now. Okay. There, are, there are some rural people who are saying, yeah, we understand, we sympathize with the farmers who may lose you know, parts of their farm due to this um, diversion project. But there are others who are saying, wait a second, this is, everybody's signed off on it, and why are you doubting uh, your elected leaders and people who are experts in this? And in the meantime, all this debate is happening while we have flood forecasts coming out. Exactly. And we had an interesting flood forecast because uh, you're talking major flooding in Fargo, but major flooding in Fargo is 30 feet on the red. Yeah, that's that's not so major anymore. Everybody says that's not major anymore, but you think of what is flood stage in Fargo, 19 feet? Uh, it's 18 officially. 18 feet? Yep. Okay, you go 12 feet higher. That's That's a major flood everywhere else. But Fargo is so used to... Uh, Levels like that, it's kind of like, oh, 30 feet. Okay, we're going to get the dikes out. We're going to get the sandbags out when we need to. We'll, we'll, we'll weather that storm. But I think it's very interesting. Well, the record uh, crest, uh, as you mentioned, was in 2009. That was almost 41 feet. That is, yes. Uh, but what about the rest of the Red River? Okay, uh, Grand Forks doesn't look like it's going to be much of a problem either. But go further north, and Todd did some reporting on this because he went to Grand Forks to hear the report and to talk to people at the... Red River Basin Commission, and he said that what he had learned is that farther north toward Pembina and the Canadian border, there could be more severe problems because you've got more tributaries coming in, and all the tributaries are talking about moderate flood risk. All that water flows into the red, which flows north. So Pembina may have to do a little bit of uh, planning in case these wet conditions continue. And uh, Devil's Lake has got lots of uh, snow in the basin. And that was interesting because Devil's Lake was looking better because the lake level went down this year and went down significantly compared to where it's been. But now you've got some heavy wet snow that's fallen in the area. Now you're thinking about going back up again. And that means that the diversion pumps from Devil's Lake, the, the pumps that are going to pump water out of the lake, will be running a lot more than they thought they would. Well, of course, the weather plays an enormous role here. How wet and how warm is it going to be in the next several weeks? And this is March. Yeah. And your prediction, 
is as good as anybody's. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's another. We're not all wet today, but there is another water well, story. Most people <laughs> think I am all wet. But right. the, the New York Times had a story today about uh, a water pipeline in North Dakota that mm-hmm. would uh, divert water from the Missouri River to a large swath of North Dakota. A judge has issued a harsh rebuke to the Interior Department's Bureau of Reclamation, ordering the agency to basically conduct more studies on the potential environmental impact. And the pipeline is largely built, isn't it? Uh, not entirely built, but there are a few things that that need to be built before it before it's completely uh, completely operational. It's the Northwest Area Water Supply Project or the NAWS project, and uh-huh. there's been a, a real fight among between the U.S. and Canada about it. Canada is concerned about the biota transfer and transfer of pollutants. Uh, Canada wants more water treatment at the lake level at Lake Sakakawea, where they're taking the water from. Uh, well, it's gone through State Department approvals, and it's it's gone through some hoops, and it's before this judge. Well, everybody thought that they were going to be able to go ahead and maybe finish the project. Now the judge is saying, wait a second, we don't think that you've done enough due diligence on this. So everything is kind of up in the air again. One of the representatives of the Water Commission today, when testifying before this Water Commission bill that we're talking about with the diversion, talked about that and, and was asked the question, and he said, we do have a hostile judge in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. who's making these rulings and uh, who really may not understand the entire thing. So, you know, there's a, that's, a, that's a little bit of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking after uh, judges just announced a ruling. But this has been through the courts a few times, and it's going to be through the courts a few more. Well, and we need to remember also that Missouri has filed separate suit against right. this because it's, it diverts 3.5 billion gallons of water per year from the river and they it want does. it downstream. It does. But if you think about what that means, somebody told me it would be about 6 inches on the level of Missouri going into St. Louis. <laughs> Lots of water in the but river. But still, there's a lot of water in the river. But it is that classic upstream versus downstream interest fight. You have the upstream interest is saying, we gave up a lot to give you flood control downstream. You you need to, you know, let us do our thing up here. Missouri says, wait a second, it's our river too, it's our water, and, you know, we need to use it for barge traffic. So it has been a classic confrontation that's going on since since Garrison was conceived back in back in the, in the 40s yeah. with the Pix Loan Plan and then was authorized in 1965. Well, let's change subjects now. Uh, I don't know if you any more out of, shoes... We're out can, of the deep water now? <laughs> yes, we are. I don't know if any more shoes can drop in the Chancellor and Higher Ed Board uh, thing, but one certainly went thump yesterday. It did. Uh, student Representative uh, Sidney Hull uh, presented the board with information suggesting alleged violations of the state's open meeting and open records laws. He had a, quite a pack of paper that he handed out to the board members, and I do have a copy of it and have taken a precursory look at it. And there are allegations that secret meetings in violation of the open meeting, open records law were held, and that... Um, that the chancellor and the and the board executive committee are not following board of higher education policy. Well, when Sidney Hull presented this, he wanted a meeting in April, saying we really need to discuss this as soon as we could. Uh, the chairman of the board, or the board president, I should say, Dwayne Espigard, said no, but we will we will deal with this at our May meeting to give you time to take a look at it and to do some investigation as to what's happened. And we will fully, he said, we will fully vet this in May at an open meeting. Well, Dwayne Espigard is a former lawmaker and uh, certainly knows about the open meeting and open records laws. Yeah, one would think. And, of course, you have legal counsel in in the uh, board's office that said, you know, don't violate the open meetings, open records law. And as, as you remember, Doug, uh, the Board of Higher Education in the past has not had a stellar record with no, that. No. But over the past 10 years since it's been, you know, the chancellor has been in place and there's been more of an openness to higher education, they seem to be better about open meetings, open records. However, they did get in trouble uh, concerning the president of UND, if you remember that a few years ago. Yes, I do. Now, but another aspect of this that struck me uh, even more forcefully wasn't the packet that was presented to the board, although that obviously will be looked at very closely. It was the uh, crack in what we've heard of this 
board solidarity. Obviously, there isn't solidarity. Obviously not, because uh, the student representative, Sidney Hall, represented, you know, had some questions and said he was representing students. The students gave the chancellor a no-confidence vote. And the faculty representative was saying, hey, I'm open to further discussing this. And uh, at one point, uh, one of the board members, I think it was Sydney, Sydney, the student representative, said, uh, Mr. Espigard, you don't speak for the entire board. Yeah, that speaks volumes. Yeah, this, could, this is going to, this is, it's caused some tension within the board. It's caused some tension between the students and the board and some of the staff, the board, and the students. It's really kind of an interesting situation right now. And right now, and I think the chancellor is keeping quiet about it, probably a very good idea. He uh, did speak to a Grand Forks group today where he was asked a question about, you know, independence of the campuses. And he said that his, his plan is not to be a micromanager of the campuses. He said that to Grand Forks people. Of course, UND is one of the research universities. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. This is the continuing saga. Yes. Now let's talk about the animal cruelty bill that has been put forward by Senator Tim Flackle of Fargo. Ran into some opposition. It did, and it's very interesting because the opposition is coming from some ranchers who are concerned about uh, the Humane Society of the United States getting getting in there and doing some manipulation when it comes to branding of cattle, et cetera, things, issues like that. And the Farm Bureau, who originally said that they supported it, has now withdrawn its support, and that drew an angry response from the from the sponsor of the measure, Senator Flackle from Fargo, who said, wait a second, you know, we thought we had a deal. You came out and said with us, we've got legislation pending, we'll get the legislation through, you supported it on the House side, or on the Senate side, why are you not supporting it now on the Senate side? Good question. And it is because they think that the felony... Uh, is too harsh. Mm-hmm. They would rather go to an A misdemeanor first. Okay. So we'll see. Maybe they'll uh, reduce the penalty. It's, it, this is the interesting part of the session, Doug, if you hadn't guessed. <laughs> One more thing here, and this is uh, uh, basically uh, uh, about face on the uh, No Child Left Behind mandate for North Dakota. The, mm-hmm. the, there had been the suggestion that, uh, well, actually, Kirsten Baszler, the new commissioner of education, had submitted a waiver, now they've pulled it back. They did, because uh, there's, there's been such a backlog at the Department of Education. She said, look, our school, our school districts need to know what faces them this fall, and if we don't get the waiver, we need to you know, give them some guidance. So she pulled back the waiver and said, what can I do? Because there's been such a backlog, and, and the, they haven't ruled on our, our waiver request, so we need to tell the school districts what to do. Well, I, I, I need to get her title correct, Superintendent of Public Superintendent Instruction. Superintendent of Public Instruction. Right. Uh, but uh, the thing that really caught my eye was that uh, she was joined by the North Dakota Council of Educational Leaders, North Dakota School Boards Association, and the North Dakota Education Association. Right. And all the groups agreed. We need to know what, what the rules are when we go into the September, uh, when to the new school year in September. So, yeah, the people are planning already for next year. Well, and it's, uh, I, I understand it, and uh, Kristen Baszler really wanted to get a waiver, be one of the states to have a waiver, but she said it's a situational thing. All right. Well, we've run out of time, Dave. All right. But thank you very much for shedding some light on these issues. You are very welcome. Dave Thompson is Prairie Public's news director, and uh, we have a, a message from Tom Ezer in one of his Dakota folktales coming up. I'm Tom Jelton, NPR correspondent. You know, after more than 25 years here, I still say that with pride. This is a place where we're taught to listen, to understand, to explain, but also to entertain. We're out there in the world, but we come into your home. At times, we may horrify you, but the stories we tell will also reassure and inspire you. It's up to us to connect you. This is NPR. And this is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. Did I say folk tales? Well, NDSU Distinguished Professor of History Tom Ezern joins us with this week's Plains Folk column, and it's titled German Maids. The modest gravestone of Nina Farley Wishick bears the simple legend, Pioneer Mother. Perhaps that's enough, for Mrs. Wishick would have embraced both those labels. But what about author? 
a teacher and a poet, Nina Farley Wishick is most remembered as the author of a remarkable book, Along the Trails of Yesterday, A History of Macintosh County. I know what you're thinking, another musty old county history, but this one holds interest for people far beyond the confines of McIntosh County. For it records, in thoughtful fashion, the encounter of Anglo-American pioneers with North Dakota's largest ethnic group, the Germans from Russia. Born in 1869, Nina Farley came to McIntosh County before statehood to homestead with her parents from Michigan. She got herself a teaching certificate and taught in several county schools, including ones with German-Russian pupils. In 1891, she married John Wischick, a businessman who was German, uh, not German-Russian, and who actively recruited German-Russian settlers to the region. So the two of them lived at the confluence of ethnic cultures. They are considered, historically, the founding family of Wischick. Now, Germans from Russia can be a little sensitive about their ethnic identity, especially about stereotypes thereof. And so a book about their culture by an Anglo-American woman is a contentious proposition. There is indeed some rationale for taking offense, for a somewhat patronizing tone occasionally seeps into the narrative. Mrs. Wishick sometimes praises the stolid heroism of the German-Russian pioneers a little too forcefully, whereas at other times she speaks wistfully of the early Yankee settlers who departed, leaving the German-Russians locally dominant. And she includes one chapter entitled, German Maids Whom I Have Known, meaning house servants, German-Russian country girls who came to town to keep house for Mrs. Wishick. The titling of the chapter may have been a little insensitive, but it reflects a common historical reality. Throughout the Great Plains, Anglo-American townswomen recruited domestic servants from among the country folk, immigrant girls who entered into such service to help their own families prove up and get established. This situation, so memorably described by Willa Cather in My Antonia, was not only common but also important. It was the way that Yankee families got to know the immigrant cultures of the countryside. In this case, Mrs. Wishick got to know the country girls not just incidentally, but also by insistently questioning them about their family histories, including life in the old country and immigration to North Dakota. Often girls came into my home who had been over from the old country only a week or two, writes Wishick. As time passed and I became more conversant with the German tongue, I learned more of the old world and the way in which they lived there. She tells some of their stories, including one of a family traumatically divided by a case of trachoma, which caused a sister of the maid telling the tale to be turned back at Ellis Island. The sister eventually made it to America, however, and became another in Mrs. Wishick's series of German-Russian maids. Today, she lives in Ashley, highly respected and greatly loved by relatives and friends, her chronicler concludes. And we are left with this poignant narrative of cultural exchange, a book worth reading and rereading. That's Tom Ezern, NDSU history professor, and he reminds us about these county histories that are out there. Uh, If you have uh, a, a presence in a county for a long time, generational presence, those books are actually very, very interesting. I, I know in my own experience, very interesting to read about your ancestors, essentially, uh, when the county was much younger. At any rate, uh, I'll look for that book again. And Dakota Date Book is next. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. I'm Bill Law, host of Prairie Public's The Law of Jazz. Each week, the show features the best of classic and contemporary jazz, from classic swing to today's top artists. Join me each Saturday at 8 p.m. for The Law of Jazz, here on Prairie Public.
This is Dakota Datebook for March 8th. News of its namesake's death reached Burley County on this date in 1896. Walter Burley had passed away the evening before in Yankton, South Dakota. Burley's duplicitous character made him a prominent figure in the early days of Dakota Territory. Born in Maine in 1820, Burley initially went into the study of medicine. He opened a practice in western Pennsylvania, but soon became interested in politics. He campaigned for Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and helped carry Pennsylvania for the 16th president. In return, he wanted a political appointment, and the president offered to make him Indian agent at Greenwood in Dakota Territory. Burley told the president that a meager salary would require him to steal or starve in order to survive. The president replied, Dr. Burley, if I am any judge of human nature, you won't starve. And starve he did not. Immediately upon his arrival at Greenwood, Burley began a system of forgery and fraud that lasted throughout his tenure and made him and his family very, very rich. Today, he's known for many progressive reforms at the agency, including his favorable dealings with chiefs struck by the re. With his help, he built up the agency's facilities and implemented all of the requirements of the 1858 treaty. He assured land rights and monetary payments to the children of tribal members and was also able to persuade the Yanktonai not to join in the Minnesota Sioux War. He also established the Yankton Scouts, who helped maintain peace along the James River. Despite these beneficial acts, however, Burley also participated in defrauding the government and the tribes on a massive scale by stealing annuity payments and livestock, falsifying receipts for labor and goods never purchased, and hiring family and friends for unnecessary positions. This led to his removal from office in 1865. By that time, he had amassed an enormous ranch and sufficient wealth to relocate to Burley County, where he won a contract with the Northern Pacific Railroad to grade 50 miles of track by Bismarck. Of course, knowing the course of the line, Burley used the information to his benefit and was able to build the first house in that city and profit from the town's development. Despite his past corruption, he went on to become a successful politician. Today's Dakota Date Book is written by Jamie Job. I'm Merle Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. Well, Monday on our show, you notice I didn't call it Hear It Now, we'll talk about the tax season. It's upon us. And we'll have an update from ND Tax Commissioner Corey Fong, that's North Dakota, and designer jeans of the next big medicine fix. Disease cells that can be repaired with 100% accuracy? Well, that's the subject of the next Science Cafe speech, and that will be given by Dr. Glenn Dorsum, Assistant Professor of Veterinary and Microbial Sciences at NDSU. He gives that at the Hodo in Fargo next week. And, of course, if you're in Fargo, the Fargo Film Festival in its 13 years in full swing, The Brass Teapot, premieres tonight, produced by a couple of North Dakotans. In the meantime... Have a great weekend.